Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays a prayer that according to the riches of God's glory, may we be granted to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in our inner beings so that Christ would dwell more fully in our hearts through faith. Father, that's the prayer of this church, of my heart this morning, is that, Christ, you would dwell more fully in us. That as we look towards a, a, a week of thanksgiving, that the first thing that comes of our, off of our lips is our gratitude for you. As we look towards the expected and anticipated arrival of Christ in Christmas, I pray that, that you would dwell more fully in our hearts, whether that's through Advent devotionals, whether that's through the songs that we sing, the sermons that we preach, whatever that looks like, I just pray, Christ, this would be a season that you are extremely magnified in our lives. I pray the prayer of Paul in Colossians that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Lord, as we approach uh, the end of the Old Testament today, this, the end conclusion of Ezra and Nehemiah, would you give us spiritual wisdom, not just common sense, not just wisdom, but spiritual wisdom. Help us to see the deep things of God through your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, you guys can go ahead and have a seat for me. Um, here's my disclaimer. Um, I got my clicker with me, so we are going to be flying through today. Uh, this is not necessarily normal for us as a church where I use slides and really take our time walking through some scriptures. Um, but when we open up a book or open up a series, um, I think it's really important to get a, a pretty 30,000-foot picture overview of where we're headed. And similarly, as we close, I think it's really important for us to kind of review where we've been and make sure that we, we close these books in a way that magnify the reason they're in Scripture, right? Why did God, in, in His authority and His inspiration, choose to include Ezra and Nehemiah in the canon of Scripture? Um, I want us to go a little bit deeper to answer that question this morning. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please go ahead and turn with me to the book of Haggai. You did not expect that, did you? The book of Haggai. So I'm going to give you plenty of time to find that, okay? So um, my sister-in-law has lived in Brooklyn or New York City since, I think, 2012. And right before Annie and I moved to the mission field, we had the unique opportunity to go up and visit her and stay with her. And while there, we caught a Broadway play. And I don't know if you've ever had the experience of seeing something on Broadway, but, but man, it's pretty phenomenal. Um, and the, the play that we got to see was The Lion King, hands down the best Disney movie ever created, right? So incredible experience. Um, and uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with, with Broadway or familiar with The Lion King. I'm going to assume that all of you know at least the plot story of the movie Lion King. But there's this scene where Nala, the girlfriend right, of Simba, has challenged him to return to Pride Rock and to take his rightful place as king. Can I get some head nods that you know at least what I'm talking about, right? Go back to Pride Rock, take your rightful place, but Simba won't. Like, he can't do it. There's something hindering him. He doesn't want to face his past. He doesn't want to relive, right, the death of his father until a wise, a wise sage in the form of Rafiki, you know, that crazy baboon, you know, comes alongside Simba and says, actually, your, your father's not dead. He's alive and I can show him to you. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, you're tracking with me. So, so Rafiki takes Simba through the jungle, and they, they go on this little journey, and then all of a sudden they come to this pool of water, and when you get to this pool of water, like the lights kind of start to dim down. I'm sitting in this Broadway auditorium, and the music starts to, to kind of fade a little bit lower, and there's this, this massive moment where Simba goes, and he looks into this pool of water, and if you remember, he looks, and he's really disappointed, and he says, that's not my father. It's just my reflection, to which Rafiki says, what? No, look harder, right? So Simba goes back to the water, and, and he looks, and, and as he stares past what is superficial, he looks a little bit beyond what's on the surface. He sees his father, 
right? In his own reflection, he sees him. And Rafiki, in that moment, makes this, this statement. He says, um, you see, he lives in you. All right, so picture me. I'm on Broadway. I'm a country redneck. I've never seen anything like this, okay? I'm sitting in this Broadway play, and this, this scene is taking place before my eyes. And as soon as Rafiki says, he lives in you, the lights kind of start to fade on, right? The music starts to build. And all of a sudden, I'm aware that all around us, like surrounding the auditorium, are Broadway performers. And they're dressed out in this like beautiful, vibrant, traditional African garb. And they're singing that song. If you know the song, He Lives in You. They're singing that song. And y'all, I had a moment. God bless my wife. We've been married for about a year. I know she was so embarrassed. I kid you not, weeping. Like I'm, I'm weeping and my hands are raised. I'm like, I just had this moment like between me and the Lord. And it was, it was unbelievably embarrassing, but it was, it was, it was powerful. But it all came from just that, that wisdom of Rafiki, right, to look, look harder. And what he's telling Simba is like, look past what may be on the surface, because if you can see beyond maybe what's superficial, you can actually see something that's been there all along, right, that's been there all along. Similarly, I think I just, I just want to call us to look harder at Ezra and Nehemiah this morning, because we've seen some incredible things. Right? I, I've heard from many of you that your prayer life has been kick-started through these books. I've heard from some that you've begun to fast, maybe even for the first time because of the challenge of these books. Repentance and confession is becoming a part of your normal daily life because of these books. You've been uh, engaged in spiritual warfare, maybe for the first time because of what we've seen in these books. And y'all, these are incredible stories, but we need to look harder because there is some deep significance in Ezra and Nehemiah that points us to Christ that we may be missing if we don't take this journey. So that's my hope today is that we look harder. And to do that, we are going to have to take a brief review. And by brief, I mean, y'all buckle up, okay? I'm going to take you back to where we were 21 weeks ago when we first kick-started this book, okay? So if you can remember, we chose to preach Ezra and Nehemiah because historically they've always been one book, Right? In the Hebrew Bible, third, before the 3rd century B.C., these were always compiled as one book. It wasn't until the Bible was translated into Greek in the 3rd century B.C. that they were actually divorced and separated into two. So historically, they've always been one book. One book with, with one message that covers one singular significant event in the life of Israel, right? And what is that event? The return and the rebuild of the people of God after exile. So we chose to preach one book because they've always been considered one book. But to understand the, the importance of Ezra and Nehemiah, we have to know where do they fit in the entirety of Scripture? Like, where do they fit in the story of the Bible? And if you remember this slide, anybody? 21 weeks ago, okay? I showed you that this is kind of where they are in your Bible. When you open the table of contents in your Bible, this is how they're ordered. Because our Bibles are organized by genre. They're organized by genre. First, you have the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you move into the historical writings, and you can find Ezra and Nehemiah right there at the end of the historical writings. You following me? So when you open up the Old Testament, and your Bible is almost smack dab in the middle of the Old Testament. Of course, it moves into the poetic writings, and then we said the major prophets, who are major, not because of their importance, right, but because their books are longer. And then you have the minor prophets, whose books are shorter. So in our Bibles, organized by genre, Ezra and Nehemiah are smack dab in the middle of the Old Testament. But that's not really where they happen chronologically. Like if you order the Old Testament by time, this is what you see. Hope you can see that. I hope we zoomed in enough. What I want you to see is that Ezra and Nehemiah are actually the last books of the Old Testament. 
It is the last story of the Old Testament. And as you're going to see here in a second, y'all, that is incredibly significant. Okay? So let me continue on our review. This is where they're ordered. But I also said to understand Ezra and Nehemiah, there are two Old Testament themes or two Old Testament concepts that we have got to grasp for these, for these books to make sense. Okay? The first is the concept of covenant. You ever read through the Old Testament and you're just like, what is happening? Like, what is a covenant? Well, we discussed this all throughout this book, that a covenant is a contractual relationship that God establishes with his people. God wants to be in relationship with his people. So he establishes covenants with his people that do three things. It defines the basis for this relationship. I will be your God. You will be my people. This is what it is. It establishes the conditions that need to be met what God plans and promises to do for his people, what the people should do to honor that relationship. And then thirdly, it talks about the consequences. Good ones. If you are faithful and you, you honor this relationship and this covenant, good things will happen, but also negative consequences if we choose to be faithless and break this covenant. So when you survey, y'all, the entire Old Testament, the Old Testament really makes sense as you follow covenants. Okay, In Genesis, we see a covenant to Abraham. This is an Abrahamic covenant. God says, Abraham, I want to be your God, and I want you and your descendants to be my people. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a nation. And through you, all the ends of the earth are going to be blessed, right? It's an Abrahamic covenant. Well, in Exodus, God reaffirms his desire to be in relationship with the entire nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. He reaffirms his covenant in the Mosaic covenant. And it's very similar language as the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a land through you. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. But in the Mosaic covenant, he, he adds something. He clearly lays out the conditions. This is what the law is. If you do these things, you can remain in relationship with me and I'll bless you. But if you're faithless and you reject these things that I'm asking you to do, there, there's consequences to this. So in the Mosaic Covenant, he, he lays out the conditions. So let me give you an example of some of these conditions. Some of you are approaching the end of the year and you go, you know what? I need to read the Bible through in a year. How many of you have done that every year? And then you make it to this book right here, Leviticus. And you're like, what on earth is Leviticus all about? It's about the conditions. It's about telling you what God expects of you so that we can remain in relationship with God. So in Leviticus chapter 26, he's laying out the conditions and he fin God finally gets to the consequences. He says, listen, if you do not listen to me, if you will not do these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all of my commandments, but you break my covenant. And then the remainder of Leviticus chapter 26 lays out consequences. And if you read that chapter, what's interesting is they progressively get worse and worse and worse. Parents in the room, kid breaks a rule, you know, don't make me say it again. That's where it starts, kind of where it starts with the Lord. Okay, you did it again, go to your room. Oh, you want to do it again? Some, some of you are not for spanking, but others are, okay? It happens. These progressive consequences, they get worse and worse. And finally, in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 33, God says it. Listen, ultimately, if you break covenant, I'm going to exile you. The land that I've given you, the land that I'm promising you, I'm going to scatter you. The, the, the sword is going to be unseathed after you, and your land will be a desolation, and your city shall be laid waste. All right, so you following me right now. We're in Leviticus. 
These are the, the conditions that God lays out, and the consequence is going to be exile if the people are faithless. But for a large portion of Israel's history, these negative consequences were, were really irrelevant because under the leadership of godly kings like King David, they, they were faithful. For the most part, they were faithful. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God reaffirms his desire to be in relationship with Israel in the Davidic covenant. Similar language. It says, David, I, I'm going to make you a great name, like the names of the great ones of the earth. And through you, the nations will be blessed. But then in the Davidic covenant, y'all, he goes on and he adds one more thing. He says, in your house, in your kingdom, would be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This is a promise of land. This is a promise of kingdom. This, this is a, a promise of relationship. But he adds, and you're going to have a descendant on the throne forever. So that's what's unique about the Davidic covenant is a promise of an heir through the line of David forever. So if you know Israel's history, you know that after David and especially after Solomon, things took a, a pretty hard left turn. Everything started to go downhill to the point where they were very faithless. They rejected God. They broke covenant. That's the story as you read through the Kings and read through Chronicles. This is where we get to the second theme. So I told you to understand Ezra and Nehemiah. We've got to understand covenants and the role that they play in the Old Testament. But the second thing that we have to understand is the role of hesed. Anybody remember that word? It's a Hebrew word that means steadfast love, mercy, kindness, and goodness. And in the Old Testament, what you see is that the people of Israel continually reject God, but God remains steadfast in his love for his people. He remains merciful. He remains good. He remains kind. And one of the ways that he demonstrates his steadfast love is by sending his people prophets. Prophets. Prophets would come and they'd say, the Lord, the God of their father, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had hesed. God had compassion on his people. He didn't want his people to suffer the consequences of their sin. So he sent prophets to say, turn back. They would preach repentance. Please stop being faithless. Turn back. Renew your commitment. Continue to follow the Lord your God. Honor the covenant. That was the message of the prophets. But what did the people of Israel do? Scripture says it. Second Chronicles 36, they just kept mocking the prophets. They despised their words. They scoffed at the prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. And the ultimate consequence took place, y'all. Exile. In 586 BC, the kingdom of Babylon came and they conquered the land of Israel and they, they deported every single resident of Israel. But church, I want us to look harder for a moment. This happens. But even right up until the last second of the exile, God was steadfast in his love for his people. He continued to send them prophets. Specifically, he sent Jeremiah and he sent Ezekiel, who prophesied even throughout the time of the exile. And here's, here's something that's new for you, okay? I, 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 this is important for you to hear me say. Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they preached repentance. They continued to tell everybody, I want you to turn back, I want you to follow God, but they also preached hope. In fact, they preached hope in the form of a new covenant. Everybody ever heard that phrase before? A new covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 31, this is how he says new covenant. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, 
That covenant, the old covenant, they broke it. Though I was hesed, like though I was steadfast, that was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Church, Jeremiah starts talking about a new covenant. Something new is coming, and it's different because the conditions of obedience aren't obedience to laws written on tablets of stone. It's, it's obedience of conscience, it's obedience written on tablets of your heart. This is, the old covenant was something that would affect the people from the outside in. Jeremiah is saying, no, no, something new is going to take place that will impact you from the inside out, okay? There's this hope that you can actually be faithful because I'm going to change you from the inside out. And church, what is really fascinating about the prophecies of the new covenant is that Jeremiah prophesied a new covenant in parallel with a return and a rebuilding of the land. All right, did you follow that? Again, the exile's happening. Everybody's exiling. And Jeremiah's going, don't worry, there's going to be a new covenant. And it's going to happen when you return and when you rebuild this land. When you see the return happen, get ready, a new covenant's coming. Let me show you Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 38. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when this city shall be rebuilt for the Lord. When the return happens, when the rebuild takes place, be ready, the new covenant's coming. Same thing in Ezekiel. Ezekiel prophesies of a new covenant. He says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, which is a soft heart. So I'll put my spirit within you, and I'll cause you, I will cause you, to walk in my statutes, and to be careful to obey all of my rules. Same thing, a new covenant that will make a relationship to God, a faithfulness to God, a guarantee, because it will change the people from an inside out, not from the outside in. He's saying, I'm going to give you a heart that will make faithfulness to me secure. I'll give you a heart that will make faithfulness to me a a true guarantee. You'll actually be able to remain steadfast in relationship with me, because I will make it possible. But again, Ezekiel prophesies about a new covenant that happens parallel to the return and to the rebuild. Next verse, and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. A.K.A., people of Israel, when you return and you start to rebuild, get ready. The new covenant is coming. Are you following me? Y'all just look, I just took you through a seminary class, I know. There's coffee outside. Stand up, shake around, okay? We got to look harder. In the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, what we see is this playing out, right? Because what we see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah is the return and the rebuild, right? That's all that it's about. The significant event of Ezra and Nehemiah is that God and his steadfast love stirs up the people of Israel to return to the land of Israel and to rebuild the land of Israel. And what should they start expecting once the return takes place and once the rebuild takes place? A new covenant. And what we see in Ezra and Nehemiah is a people who are almost anticipating this, like like yearning for this. We actually see them in their zeal recommitting to covenant because they know it's coming. Remember in Ezra chapter 10, they said, listen, we have broken faith with our God. Therefore, let us make a new covenant with our God. We want to renew ourselves. We're ready for this new covenant. There was a zeal to renew the covenant in the people of Ezra. What about Nehemiah? It's the same thing. In Nehemiah chapter 9, they say, God, listen, you've you've been faithful. You've been righteous. You have dealt with us faithfully. We've acted wickedly. 
But then they go on to say, and because of this, we, we want to renew. We want to be zealous for the covenant because the return has taken place, the rebuild has taken place, a new covenant is coming. We want to be a people prepared for the arrival of a new covenant. You see in the significance of this? If not, hang in there. But how does the story of Ezra end? Y'all remember this? It is so depressing. The story of Ezra ends with the people of Israel, almost just a few verses after Ezra chapter 10, verse 3, returning to polytheism, rejecting God, and breaking covenant. Their desire to will themselves to covenant faithfulness didn't work out very much. They rejected God. And that's how Ezra ends. Like, it's not like a dot, 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 you know, to be continued. There's no, like, part two. Like, like Ezra ends with the people of God failing again. When you're like, okay, well, what about Nehemiah? Nehemiah's got to be better. Really? You don't remember what Nehemiah preached two weeks ago? Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, and he finds all the people of God dishonoring the Sabbath, neglecting the temple worship, and once again, embracing polytheism through intermarriage. So he starts ripping everybody's beards out because of the faithlessness of the people of Israel. And Nehemiah just ends. Y'all, it just, it just ends. It just ends with the people of Israel once again failing, once again being faithless. But it, remember the chronology. Ezra and Nehemiah don't just end in this despairing, hopeless way. The entire Old Testament ends this way. When you read the Old Testament and you see covenants, what you see is the same story over and over and over again. God being faithful, people being faithless. But God is steadfast. And even in their rejection, in Ezra and Nehemiah, God sends prophets. Y'all remember this? God sends prophets. There were three prophets that prophesied during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. I'm going to read you just three sermons, one from each of these prophets, and you start connecting the dots for yourself, okay? Because what is the role of the prophet? To preach repentance, for sure, but also to preach hope, to preach hope that something is coming. Keep hoping. There's a new covenant that is on its way. Let's start. If you have your Bible, this is Haggai chapter 2. See, I did all that review just to give you enough time to find Haggai. Haggai chapter 2, verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. But on that day, right, some futuristic day, so there's a futuristic day coming, it says, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. I know what you're thinking. What? This is what Haggai's saying. Haggai's saying there's a day coming when, when thrones and, and other foreign kingdoms will be shattered. And in that day, I'm sovereignly selecting one named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel is going to be a co-reigner with me. And he is going to reign alongside me. In fact, he's going to be my servant. 
Y'all, if you just want to underline or circle that phrase, my servant, it is a Hebrew phrase that always signifies the throne of David. In fact, it signifies the messianic promise of an heir that will come to the throne of David. See, if you read through Isaiah and you talk about my servant who is coming to establish his rule and his reign, that's that Hebrew phrase. Zerubbabel is going to be my servant that reigns with God. He even calls him a signet ring. An an ancient king, right, would, would have a ring with a unique identifying seal on it. So when he maybe throws out an edict, he would take his ring and he would seal that piece of paper saying, this is under the authority of the king. What he's saying is, this is Rubabel is going to come with my authority. He's going to have the authority of God. All right, then we got Zechariah. Anybody read Zechariah before? Trippy stuff in there. There is some stuff in Zechariah that is hard to understand that can be incredibly confusing because he's, he's talking about these dreams that he's had. He's talking about these visions that he's had. But Zechariah's chapter 12 through 14, y'all, is crystal clear. Let me read to you Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Yeah, I can keep flipping there and get there. This is Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. God says through the prophet, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they'll mourn for him and they'll weep bitterly for him. Here's a prophecy from Zechariah stating that that there's a day coming when people are going to look on somebody. They're going to look on somebody that they have pierced, and when they look on him, a spirit of grace is going to flow out and pour out onto his people. Here's what God is saying through Zechariah, saying, listen, Ezra, remember, he's a counterpart to Ezra. Ezra, I get it. I get it. They're faithless again. They keep failing again, but don't lose hope because a day is coming that they're going to see somebody, somebody that is pierced for them that's going to make this relationship possible because a spirit of grace is going to be poured out on them. What about Malachi? Last book in the Old Testament. Malachi was a counterpart to Nehemiah. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he's going to prepare the way before me. Who is the messenger going to prepare the way for? The Lord. And the messenger is going to prepare the way before me. And it says, and the Lord whom you seek, the Lord that you want to be in relationship with, but you just can't, he's going to suddenly show up to you. And the messenger of that new covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But if you read Malachi, you know that before the messenger of the new covenant comes, before the Lord whom in you delight comes, somebody's got to come before him to prepare the way. And the last verse of Malachi says this, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So church, through Malachi, this is what God's saying. He's saying, Nehemiah, I know you're angry. Like, I get it. Like, I see you ripping beards out. I see that you keep getting angry at the people of God for their faithlessness. Don't worry, it angers me too, so I'm going to change everything. I'm going to send a messenger that's bringing a new covenant. But before he comes, I'm going to send another messenger, another prophet, who's going to look a lot like Elijah. He's going to sound a lot like Elijah, and he's going to prepare the way before the Lord in whom you delight comes. But he's coming. And then the Old Testament concludes. So so it doesn't end with hopelessness. Ezra and Nehemiah don't end with hopelessness. Ezra and Nehemiah end with expectation. 
with this, with this longing, with this expectation of like something is coming, something is going to change. It's this, this pregnancy of purpose that God says everything's going to change as soon as this happens. So you just keep looking. You just keep waiting. Zerubbabel is coming. You just keep waiting. A signet ring that I promise he's going to come. He's going to reign with me. You keep looking and see him because you're going to know him because he's going to be pierced for you. Keep looking. The spirit of Elijah is coming in this prophecy and he's going to make way for this Lord. Keep looking. Keep waiting. Do you see the, the anticipation here? The story of the Old Testament isn't one of hopelessness, church. It's one of hesed. It leaves us longing for something new. So if you're in your Bible and you're right there with me at Malachi chapter 5, I just want you to turn one page into the New Testament. Because as the people of Israel are waiting, as they're waiting for new hearts, as they're waiting for all of this to take place, when you turn to Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, this is what you read. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew goes on to list the full genealogy of Jesus, and he gets to the, the time of the exile, verse 12. Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. He says, and after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of who? Zerubbabel. Here he is. Jesus Christ is the descendant of Zerubbabel, who is going to co-reign with God, who is going to be the signet ring. He's going to be the one that's coming. The genealogy of Jesus Christ is from the line of Zerubbabel. But, but you know a messenger has to come first, right? Before the messenger of the new covenant comes, there has to be a prophet like Elijah comes. And if you know the story of Christmas, you know in Luke chapter 1, before Jesus Christ was born, his cousin was born, who, which is who? John the Baptist. And what does it say about John the Baptist in the New Testament? Oh, that he's going to turn the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he's going to go before him. Before who? Jesus Christ. In the spirit and in the power of Elijah, he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. So finally, John the Baptist has come. He prepares the way for Jesus. Jesus, the son of David. Jesus, the son of Abraham. Jesus, the son of Zerubbabel. And this Jesus is going to bring forth the new covenant. But how is he going to do it? How is Jesus going to make this, this new heart, this new spirit, this spirit of grace possible? He's going to do it by hanging on a Roman cross. In the Gospel of John, John, as an eyewitness says, he saw it up there hanging on the cross, and then one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and came out water. John's like, listen, I was there. So I saw it. I bore witness to it. This testimony is true. I'm telling you it's true because I want you to believe me, and all of this took place so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Which Scripture? That we would look on Him in whom we have pierced. And church, when you look on him and whom you have pierced, the one that Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi told us to wait for, you will receive a spirit of grace. You'll get a new heart. You'll get a new spirit. And your desire to be in relationship with God will be a guarantee because he purchased it for you. Jesus is the harbinger of the new covenant. Church, the Old Testament, so many people want to know, why is it even relevant? Like, why should we even read it? Why should we even preach it? The Old Testament is all about Jesus Christ. When Jesus looked at some of his followers, he says, listen, you guys are so eager to search the Scriptures because you think that in the Scriptures you will have eternal life, but you're missing it. Eternal life, these Scriptures, they actually reference me. It's all about me. That's what Jesus says. The Old Testament church is all about Jesus. When you close out the Old Testament, we're not to be left with hopelessness. We're to be left to, with anticipation, waiting for Jesus Christ. 
Even the Abrahamic covenant, y'all, it points to Christ because Jesus is the better Abraham. The Mosaic covenant, it points to Christ because he's the only one that can fulfill all of its conditions. The Davidic covenant, it points to Christ because he's the son of David and he is the son of Zerubbabel who came from the line of David. Christ is the true signet ring. Christ is the messenger of the new covenant. Christ was the one who was pierced for our transgressions. Christ is the only one that can make relationship with God a possibility for you. It's all about Christ. You know, and what's crazy about God's sovereignty and even the timing of this series for us as Ezra and Nehemiah, the people of Israel hear these hope, hopeful prophecies from Haggai, Malachi, and Zechariah, and then they wait. And their task was to wait for 400 years. The time period between the Old Testament closing and the New Testament opening is 400 years. When's the last time you guys waited 400 years for But the people of faith were to wait for 400 years, eagerly longing for the hope that was coming, for the peace that was coming, for the joy that was coming, for the love that was coming, for the Christ that was coming. Do you all know what the season of Advent is about? Advent is a Latin word that means arrival. And for centuries, the church of Jesus Christ has chosen to take four Sundays leading up to the arrival of Jesus Christ to live in a posture of eager expectation, to live in a waiting, to spend four Sundays going, I just need his hope, I need his peace, I need his love, I need his joy, I need the Christ. We're to mimic the reflection of the Old Testament to the New Testament, the anticipation that they had to wait for. We are to choose that posture in anticipation for the advent of Jesus Christ. So this just so happens. Next week will be our first week of Advent. And church, my heart, I I love Christmas. I love the movies. I I love the songs. I love the the little red cups that Starbucks sells that lets me know it's Christmas time. I, I love everything about Christmas. But how often are we guilty of doing our traditions, buying our gifts, putting up our trees, and missing the expectation of Christ in Christmas? I just want us, as we move into Advent this year, to behold Christ, to come in next week with with this longing to meet with Jesus over this season of Christmas. Because I think if we look harder, even into the next four weeks of the birth of Christ, we'll actually see Him. So here's how we're going to close this morning. I think think it would be good for us to enter into into a posture of of waiting by celebrating communion. So today's going to be our communion Sunday. So if you're one of our volunteers who are serving communion, if you wouldn't mind, just go ahead and making your way and grabbing those elements. Communion is a sacrament of the church that, that we've been celebrating for centuries, actually been celebrating it since the night of Christ's betrayal. And I want to remind us all that communion is a meal that, that is for the believer. So if you're not a believer in Christ, I want to kindly ask you just to let these elements pass you by. But here's something I want you to think about as we prepare our hearts to take communion. In all this talk of covenants, I left out a key insight about covenant, and that's the role of, of blood. I know that's not like fun to talk about and think about, but it's the role of blood. In covenant, blood was required, okay? So what was covenant? It's a contractual relationship between God and man. Well, God is holy, holy, holy. Mankind is is not, right? So how can a holy God be in relationship with a sinful man? The only way to make that possible is for mankind's sin to be atoned for, for the penalty for sin, which is death, to be satisfied. So when God made covenant with Abraham, he took an animal and he sacrificed it, and he atoned for the sin of Abraham so that God could enter into relationship. 
When God took Moses and the people of Israel and reaffirmed that covenant, Moses took blood, threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. It was the blood that atoned for the sin of the nation of Israel so they could enter into relationship with God. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, church, there is no forgiveness of sins. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup, similar to what you're going to have in your hand, which is red, which is sparkling, and, and he looked at that cup and he said, Look, and listen, this is the cup of the new covenant that is poured out in my blood. My blood is going to make possible a way for all of us to have intimate fellowship with the Father. It was paid for by blood. So take these elements this morning. You guys can go ahead and start handing those out. Maybe I'll ask Tim to come back up and play for us. Take these elements. Look harder into the symbolism of what they mean. Prepare your heart to expect Christ to show up this Christmas, and then I'll come back up and lead us through taking it. get ready to take this meal together. Um, I just can't fathom that we have a God that is so committed to us, even when we are so uncommitted to him. All throughout scripture, all we see is a God who is steadfast in his love toward us. Ezra chapter 3, verse 11, God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Nehemiah chapter 9, God, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And Hesed, 
the depth that God has gone to show us his love for us is hard to fathom. But God did demonstrate his love for us that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. He shed his blood so that we could have a relationship with God. So let's take this meal in honor of Christ. And may we lean into his strength, the new heart that he's given us, the new spirit that he's given us so that we can live faithful to him. On the night that he was betrayed in Luke chapter 22, he reclined at table. Just pause for a second there. He knew exactly what was about to happen to him, and yet he's reclining at table. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I tell you, I'm not going to eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took cup, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. And he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Go ahead and take the bread. likewise the cup after they had eaten saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood go ahead and take and drink church why don't you stand up with me let me pray for us and then we'll have an opportunity to sing the song behold and that's our prayer right to behold christ this christmas let me pray for us Father, thank you for the privilege that we've had this morning to look a little bit harder. To see that Ezra and Nehemiah is not simply about a return and a rebuild to a land, but about your hesed, steadfast, and faithful love for your people. For all of us, God, our relationship with you is so undeserved on our part, yet you've made it possible. You're the one that earnestly desired to see it took place. You took matters into your own hands you came and you were pierced for us. And Lord, I pray that we would behold you this Christmas. We would behold the significance of all that you are, that all that you have done, and live the rest of our days beholding you more and more. Father, thank you for Jesus. Pray this morning that our families uh, somehow, by your grace, would be able to put Christ back in Christmas. That as we go into a season of, of thanksgiving, that we wouldn't just be thankful for all that we have externally or materialistically, but we would be grateful for the steadfast love of our God. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.